Greetings, Gospel Life Church. Uh, it is great to be back here. I want to begin uh, just by saying thank you, a word of thanks. Thank you to all of you. Um, I have been on sabbatical. My name's uh, Jer- Jeremy Deck. Some of you need to know this. Uh, I've been on sabbatical. Lead pastor, Gospel Life Church. Um, I've been on sabbatical since, like, end of May. And, you know... Before you go on sabbatical, a lot, of, a lot of people say, a lot of my friends who are pastors who've had sabbaticals said to me, um, just be careful. You know, you go into a sabbatical with these expectations of great things, you know, that you're going to return with the shine of Moses on your face. And, you know, like, and, and you're, you're, there's this sense in which, like, is sabbatical going to be this almost like fix to all the things that, that were hard at the beginning of the sabbatical. And everybody's like, uh, Jeremy, just watch the expectations. But I would say that for us as a family, and, and this is why I really do want to say thank you, is that I almost had something of the opposite experience. Not that I have the shine of Moses, but, um, you know, honestly, as a family, we, we, we've been talking about this at great length these last few weeks, at what the Lord did in his mercies to go over and above, to really exceed our expectations, to give us a time of rest together, time together as a family that was really restorative and just so fun and and good for us. Um, It was really God's mercy to us. So I want to say thanks because, you know, um, we had this opportunity because Gospel Life Church sent us to do this. I want to say thanks to the elders for their leadership in this time. Thank you to Matthew because when you have two full-time staff at a church and one of the full-time staff members leaves for a season, all of that extra weight falls on the shoulder of the, the, the other guy. So he really bore that for me in this season so that I could be free for sabbatical. So thank you to him. Thanks to everyone who preached, the elders, and to Norm. You know, like, um, I, I, I don't say this for you to think, man, his job is so hard. I say this to honor them. Uh, I was reminded even this week Preaching is hard work, you know. Uh, the preparation, the time in the text, the preparation to then bring it to, to people. Um, coming up on a Sunday morning and, and uh, presenting God's word. It's a difficult task, and it's, it's a, it should be. It's, it's significant, it's, it's central, it's important. But, but we have shepherds here who are willing to take that on in the midst of my absence to a heightened degree, and I just want to say, Thank you to them. Thank you to all of you. Thank you to everyone who served behind the scenes. And I'm looking forward to meeting a number of you who I haven't met yet, um, which is exciting as well. So we need to pray because I'm a little rusty and I'm afraid you're going to send me back on sabbatical after I'm done um, in exile. So um, a lot to get through, but let's pray this morning. So Lord, now we, we look to you and we ask... God, would you speak to us this morning? We are a people in need. And centrally what we need is you. We need your word. We need you to speak to us, God. Um, We need you to speak to us that we might see our sin, that we might sense conviction by your spirit, that we might have the opportunity to repent in your spirit and, and... be transformed by the gospel. We might find joy in life and health, and we know that the only means of this is you, and so we, uh, we pray that you would do this in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Real quick housekeeping, right? So we're starting a, a new series on Zechariah. Uh, I'm going I'm to talk about why uh, in a little bit. But let me just say a couple of things. This series title, Good News for Disappointed People. And again, I, I think you'll see why that's the case. Not just because as, you know, Ellie and I were fellowshipping before the service talking about how, like, it's, it is timely to do a sermon series on disappointment um, on the opening day of the football season if you're a Bears fan. So, uh, but beyond that, there's, more, there's far more to it. And I honestly hope that this is a sermon series in which we can bring friends and neighbors and coworkers to find the kind of hope that Zechariah holds out to us. So with that in mind, you know, like a study on Zechariah is, is timely and it's important. Um, so make sure you grab one of these. We have these ESV scripture journals that we always get as we're preaching through a book. They're so good. I'll, I'll uh, not go on and on about how the, just the nice, thick, creamy paper absorbs the, get a, invest in a good pen. But, but um, we're on page 38. If you grabbed one of these, if you didn't, please do. Take it with you. Bring friends. They can take one. If you're a visitor, take one. You know, we want to put these in your hand. Um, but we're beginning with Zechariah chapter 1. Open your Bibles there. Open your scripture journals there. And let's begin. So um, it's hard to go on sabbatical and not talk a little bit, uh, not think a lot about um, growth. Like what does it mean to grow as, as, a, as a pastor certainly, right? Like, uh, you know, when you're, when you're stepping away from work for a season and taking a sabbatical. So sabbaticals happen in university contexts. They're happening more and more even in the marketplace. But the idea is that when you step away for a season, this, there's this opportunity to really focus in on things that you don't get otherwise. And part of that is growth, right? So you're thinking a lot. I was thinking a lot about, like, I want to be better as a pastor. I want to be better, certainly, as a husband and a father. Um, so you're thinking a lot about growth, and in that thinking, <laughs> you start to see all of these um, tools for growth all around you, right? Um, and I've, I've talked about this before, but it's really ubiquitous. You go into a bookstore, and there's uh, huge sections of you know, growth, self-help, right? And that's really what you see. That's really what the world holds out is like, here's a way for you to grow. Here's a way for you to improve. And even the title of, of these books, self-help, is somewhat self-contradictory, right? Um, I don't mean to besmirch all of it. I think that there are tools and, and um, various ideas that can help people, certainly. But I also think that in a primary sense, it's self-contradictory because um, self-help, right? I think the reason that instinctively we're snatching a book off of a shelf, I think the reason that there's such a huge market for self-help is precisely because we can't help, we know we can't help ourselves. If we could help ourselves, if we could, and, and the idea behind it is you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but you know, if I could just pull myself up by my bootstraps, I wouldn't need to grab the book off that shelf before I get on the plane to see how I need to fix my life, right? We, we know instinctively that we have to look outside of ourselves for growth, um, but then when we do that, oftentimes we're confronted with this idea of find that strength from within you. So um, that's not how the Bible talks about growth. I did a lot of thinking about this over the last few months. There's this tool that we've used at Gospel Life Church um, in our counseling, training of leaders. Uh, I, I believe we're going to be training our leadership team in it this fall at our leadership team retreat. It's called Fruit to Root. And um, the title of that approach, Fruit to Root, it comes, you've probably heard me talk about it, Justin talk about it. The title of it comes from a pastor in the Pacific Northwest. His name is Jeff Vanderstelt. 
thinks very much like us in terms of like gospel and mission, kind of swims in our stream. Uh, but w- while he kind of came up with that title to encapsulate the approach, he didn't invent the approach, right? If, if we were looking for human wisdom, you know, somebody who like invented an approach to help with growth, it would be just like any other self-help book, what we actually find is that the approach itself comes from the scriptures. It's actually largely the way that the New Testament very explicitly describes Christian growth and discipleship. What is it? Well, just to give an overview without stepping on the toes of the trainer, Justin, um, I promise I'll leave enough for you to train on, but um, the idea is, so the idea is this, and you've heard me talk about discipleship in these terms. If you go on the Gospel Life Church website and open up um, our blogs, I have a series on discipleship, which I talk this way, but the idea is when a discipleship issue arises in the life of a Christian, so this is the unhealthy fruit in someone's life, like an area of sin that's been difficult to put to death, like if you're, if you're here and you don't know what, what I mean when I say sin, because I realize there's a lot of um, attachment to various ideas, I'm going to talk specifically about what I mean by sin, but if there's this area of sin that keeps creeping into your life, some attitude or, of despondency or disillusionment with the scriptures, where you're like, yeah, I mean, like I'm starting to cast doubt on the scriptures, some area um, of your life that's, that's rooted in selfishness, maybe, or um, that has a real difficult time kicking a, a, a very um, unhealthy habit. This is, this is the unhealthy fruit in your life, rather than primarily saying, oh, come on, man, it's up to you to just white-knuckle this thing, rely primarily on your strength and make progress in the kingdom. Instead, we we primarily ask, why are you bearing this fruit to begin with, right? In other words, bad fruit springs out of an, only springs out of an unhealthy tree to some extent. There's some process along the line that connects to something unhealthy. So Jesus talks about that. You know, so, so it would be um, just as ridiculous to attempt to somehow deal with a Christian by demanding that we just start bearing healthy fruit in a particular area of our life without dealing with the root issue as it would be for a farmer to walk around kind of demanding uh, healthy fruit from an unhealthy tree, as I'm sure Norm, our tree expert, would agree and could say more about, right? Um, it would be like a doctor going to a hospital, you know, so you can imagine him doing his rounds, walking into the various rooms with his clipboard, checking on his patients, and demanding this, that, that his, dealing with his patients by demanding that they just completely shed their life-altering symptoms without treating the underlying cause. Like, you, you need to be up and, up and around here. I bought you a comfortable pair of walking shoes. What's wrong with you? Get up, get up, right? And, and so we need to deal with the underlying cause instead. And what is the root or underlying cause, according to scriptures, that always leads to unhealthy fruit in the life of a Christian, you know, like, yes, it's, it's sin, but how does sin, like, manifest itself? Because I think we, we tend to think of sin as behavior, like bad behavior. How does that bad behavior manifest itself? And at its root, the issue is always, always, always beginning with what we believe, right? This is a belief issue. This works backwards from the fruit, and it says, wait a minute, so... Let's look at your fruit. So if this is how I'm behaving, if this is the fruit of my life, then what does this tell me about what I'm actually believing? What am I actually believing about who God is? What am I actually believing about what he's done for us? What do I actually believe about who I am in light of who God is and what he's done? What do I actually believe about how that should shape how I live in light of all of that? So the root issue is a gospel issue. 
Are you actually believing the good news of Jesus, the gospel that the scriptures hold out to you, or has a false gospel, you know, a false understanding of God, an idol of sorts crept into your heart and begun to um, wreak havoc, right? Um, Every discipleship issue at its core has to do with gospel belief. It has to do with our belief in, in Christ. What do we actually believe in? And so the remedy that the Bible gives us for every discipleship issue, the way that we grow as Christians is actually, you know, whether we've been a Christian for 10 minutes, 10 years, 100 years, the way that the Bible describes your growth is to repent and believe. That's the remedy. Repent and believe the gospel. And it's, you know, I said New Testament explicitly describes it this way, but it's not just the New Testament that describes Christian growth, growth and discipleship in these terms. It's a unified thread throughout the Bible, and a good case study of that is the book of Zechariah, and a study of the primary discipleship issue. What I would argue is at the very least one of the primary discipleship issues, uh, unhealthy fruit in, in post-exilic Israel, according to the prophet Zechariah. And that's where we find ourselves this morning, and and probably until like mid-January, early February, depending on how long this takes us. Um, Why? Why are we going to be in Zechariah? Well, for all the reasons I just stated, I think, in the short introduction, it gives us a picture of how we grow. Zechariah is kind of perfectly uh, positioned for us to really understand how all of the Bible informs Christian growth, right? Because on the one hand, it points us backwards to the rest of the Old Testament. On the other hand, it it points us forward to this coming promise, right? So it kind of draws from everywhere to talk about this gospel, this good news that the Bible holds out and why it's so important for you. So um, this morning, my goal is to give you a strong sense of why this book is so timely and significant for us as a church family. Why this book, I, I think, is timely and significant. If you have friends and neighbors and coworkers who are looking for hope in this world, which I think we all do, this is a significant book for us to read through. I'm going to make that case today in verses 1 through 6, just the introduction to the book. So rather than starting out by giving you um, a boatload of introductory, you know, it's like whenever you're starting a new book, especially one like Zechariah, as we're going to see The temptation, I think, is to start out by giving just this boatload of introductory info on the minor prophets, where it fits from within the genre, how the book is structured. I'd rather allow all of that to be unearthed by the text as we read through it together, okay? Much like we did in Revelation, so you're still, listen, you're still going to get the boatload of introductory info. If you thought you dodged that bullet, um, if you were just breathing a sigh of relief, maybe Jeremy's changed on sabbatical. I apologize. Um, it's still coming, but, but we're able to let the text reveal it to us as we go, okay? So we'll do that this morning by looking at five realities in Zechariah. This is the outline for our text. Five realities in Zechariah that closely mirror realities for us today. Five realities during the time that this book is being written that mirror realities from today, for those of you who like outlines, who learn by the structure of, like seeing the structure of the passage, we're going to look at number one, the specific period of Israel's history in which this book is written. This is being written in a specific time period that informs us as to how to read the book in large part. So we'll look at the specific period. Number two, we'll see the prophetic word that the Lord has for Israel within that context. 
Okay, what is it that he has to say to them? Number three, we'll see the central problem facing Israel that 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 prophetic word really does seek to address. There's a problem there, and the Lord wants to speak into that problem. Number four, uh, the prescription to that central problem. What is it that Israel needs to do in order to deal with the problem? And then number five, the promise, finally, that makes uh, that kind of response possible. So five realities, the period, the prophetic word, the problem, the prescription, and the promise, my love for alliteration has not died these last three months. And um, I'll just say, if you missed any of that, we'll walk slowly through it, okay, at this point. So let's start with verse one, the specific period of Israel's history. So when is all this happening? In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius. So uh, Zechariah. Zechariah, as I've mentioned before, it's a book in the biblical genre known as Old Testament prophecy. Now, on the one hand, like, oh, you can read Zechariah and trying to, Joyce Baldwin is a really great commentator of Zechariah, and she says, you know, trying to pinpoint a literary genre that you could attach Zechariah to? Like, what kind of literature is this? That's a really difficult task for a number of reasons. Like, she's really insightful to say, like, man, over here you you have almost, like, apocalyptic, very much like Revelation. Over here you almost have narrative, but then throughout you also have oracles, words from the Lord that's fitting with Old Testament prophecy. But broadly speaking, we'll just say right now, Old Testament prophecy. That's where we find it located in the Old Testament. But, you know, if we zoom in a little further, it's not just Old Testament prophecy, but it's it's one of 12 Old Testament books that are known as the Minor Prophets. Uh, Some people call it the Book of the Twelve. But these are Minor Prophets, not minor because uh, they lack significance. In fact, we're going to talk a lot about this, but Zechariah is, is the most quoted prophet from all the Old Testament in the Gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's quoted more than any other prophet in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, second, second most quoted in all the Old Testament after the Psalms. So extremely significant in Zechariah's pointing forward to the events that happen in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to talk about that. So it's not minor in significance. It's minor in size. Obviously, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, these are the major prophets because they're much larger. So it's, okay, biblical, Old Testament, prophecy, minor prophet, but then it's one of three books, if we zoom in even further, that are often referred to as the post-exilic prophets. Post-exilic, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. What does post-exilic mean? Um, maybe you're coming and you're like, I don't really have a ton of background in the Old Testament. That's totally okay. I'll, I'll use that term throughout, but, but from time to time I'll clarify. It just refers to the period of time that Israel, um, after Israel was in Babylon. Right? So they've been released from exile in Babylon. Just a quick Old Testament history on that point. So throughout, throughout the Old Testament, as we read it, we see that Israel is in this pattern of sin and idolatry. Right? And they continue to reject God, reject his word. They're not listening to him. And that brings about judgment in the form of servitude from, a, from another nation. So they cry out to God for redemption. He hears and redeems them. But then over time, you know, they, again, they're glad to be redeemed from their bad circumstances. But their heart is still to reject his word, you know. And then there's servitude from another nation. They cry out. He redeems them. All right. So 
They're in that cycle. But even in the midst of God's grace redeeming Israel, their continued pattern of sin once again brings about judgment. But this time it's through the nation of Babylon marching against Jerusalem. And so the fall of Jerusalem happens historically like 586, 587 BC, in which Jerusalem falls and God's people are displaced out of God's place, out of the land, into Babylon, and they live there for approximately 70 years. All right? Uh, so some of the prophets are pre-exilic because they speak to Israel before they go into exile. Some are exilic because they're actually, their, their function is to speak to Israel while they're in exile. Some do both. And, and here we see three post-exilic prophets. Zechariah is among them because God's people have finally returned. They've returned. From Babylon, out of exile, into Jerusalem. Good news, right? Well, in returning, they're confronted by an enormous challenge that many of them simply hadn't anticipated. How do we see all of this? In the first few words of verse 1. So let's look again. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius. Who's Darius? He's a Persian king. Uh, in terms of the date given here, we're probably looking at this being written at around 520 B.C., Israel's under Persian rule, all right. And it's under this Persian rule of Israel that they were released from exile, okay? And there's a lot of reasons that the Persians would release people from exile, but the primary reason, and if you're interested in that history, come talk to me afterwards, the Q&A, um, and we can hash through some of that. But the primary reason that Persia allows Israel to go back is because God promised that this would happen. Right? He's, he's bringing his promises to bear. He brings the Persians into power. Cyrus and Darius subsequently send exiles back to their homeland. And yet, by opening the book in this way, by identifying, you know, Zechariah is being very um, intentional in this. By identifying the time period in which he's writing on the basis of the reign of this guy, Darius, uh, he, he's exposing one of the main circumstances in the book that's so stinking frustrating for the people who are living during this time. They're so frustrated, and this is why. Sure, they're out of exile, but they're still under the thumb of a foreign ruler. This is a big deal. They're not entirely free. The shadow of exile, as Anthony Pedersen says, like the shadow of exile still looms over them in, a, in quite a major way. The sentiment is so pronounced among God's people that a lot of scholars, like N.T. Wright out of the U.K., he argues that when you, when you get to around Jesus' day, so Jesus is on the scene 500 years later, and, and so when you, a little over 500 years, and so when you come to Jesus' day, most Jewish, Jewish people in Jerusalem during Jesus' day would have said that they were actually still in exile because they were under Roman rule. This is how it felt to be occupied and ruled by this by, by someone from the outside, by the Romans, by, in this case, the Persians. Um, so to see Darius's name up front is still very confusing for a people who anticipated a release from exile that would potentially lead to God's kingdom being established through Israel and the nation growing and becoming what it once was under David. They think back to what the prophets wrote, right? And in Jeremiah... And in uh, other subsequent prophecies we see in the Old Testament this idea that when Israel comes out of exile, well, God's going to use Israel to establish his kingdom, right? And this is really hard for people to see. There's this anticipation that God would restore Israel as the place and the people through whom the kingdom would be established, but they return from exile, and they're still under foreign rule. And not only that, but they look around and two things seem to be happening simultaneously. First, the surrounding nations... 
that have really been the enemies of Israel. You know, they've really been opposed to the people of Israel, opposed to the word of God. They want harm for Israel. Those people appear to be prospering at every turn. The pagan worship of false gods has grown in the region. And so even some from within Israel are starting to kind of abandon the teachings of Scripture, embracing false gods. They're seeing their own people fall away. They're seeing those who are blatantly opposed to them prosper. And so the question muttered through a deep skepticism among the people of God is, how could God's, people, how, how could God's kingdom possibly break through in circumstances like this one? So Israel... Israel's becoming a deeply disappointed people around 520 B.C. As Anthony Pedersen writes about this context, he says, this is a time of disappointment, disillusionment, and despondency. He uses three words to kind of sum up the attitude in Israel during this time. Disappointment, disillusionment, and despondency. And he's absolutely right. In other words, Israel is deeply disappointed with the circumstances that they found after exile. These circumstances do not match their, ex their own expectations of how they think things should now be going. From their vantage point, like God should be on the move in a much different way than he's on the move from their perspective. So they're seeing that and they're disappointed. That disappointment leads to a disillusionment of sorts in which many begin to, at the very least, fear that, you know what, maybe the prophets are wrong. Maybe these oracles are wrong. And that brings about a despondency, a hopelessness, because, you know, if God's prophetic utterance is actually wrong, what hope does one have? We might as well just reject the scriptures and join with the seemingly prosperous surrounding pagan nations. And I think, you know, I said these are... Mirror, mirror, mirrored realities, right? So many from the church are sadly on a similar journey. There's a deep disappointment, a sense of exile, a sense of seeing very clearly the success and prospering of those who stand opposed to the scriptures, right? Um, a sense of, come on, like, Lord, where are you in this? Um, a sense of loneliness, for those who have remained faithful to the word. And that disappointment has often wrought a disillusionment in which some people then are tempted to start saying, oh, maybe God didn't really say that thing that's, that people hate to hear. Right? Um, the Bible must be mistaken on that point, which inevitably brings about the kind of hopelessness in which we say, well, if what I believed to be God's word was wrong, I guess now I'll just determine what is and what isn't God's word for myself. Why fight it? I'll just join with the world. There, there's a, I think there's a mirrored sense of, set of circumstances here um, in many ways as we're going to continue to see. So that's the specific period of Israel's history. They become a deeply disappointed people. And now we see the prophetic word that's spoken into that period. What is it that God has to say to them? Second part of verse 1, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, okay, listen, listen, into this context came the word of the Lord. The primary reason to study Zechariah, you know, the primary reason this is so important for us, so significant, so timely, is because what we don't need during the set of circumstances we just saw described for us, what we don't need in dealing with the kind of disappointment that, that Christians are facing is to turn 
to someone's enlightened opinion about how to deal with it. It's not going to help anyone. It's only going to lead to more brokenness. Ironically, sometimes the very things that we think are going to be a help in that way, these like, these like cutting edge um, enlightened opinions, just end up manifesting more, more sin, more ego, more pride, more desire of acceptance from the world around us. Right? Okay, so what we don't need is just someone's enlightened opinion. Verse 1 again, look, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, in the midst of a foreign ruler ruling over you, in the midst of your disappointment from coming out of exile and not seeing the things that you thought, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, the, the point of this verse, this opening verse, is to say precisely this, that what God's people need in this circumstance of disappointment, the circumstance of, of, of disillusionment and despondency, is the spoken word of God, an utterance directly from God to his people. This, this verse is meant to identify Zechariah not as some kind of wise philosopher of the day with cutting-edge insights, but as God's own prophet, a herald declaring simply what the Lord has spoken to him. It's interesting that the name Zechariah means God has remembered. Yahweh has remembered. That's really fitting as we look through this uh, book together, because the disappointment of Israel appears to be centered on the idea that the promises of God through the prophets to usher in the kingdom have been forgotten and, and um, therefore perhaps mistaken. And yet it's not God who's forgotten. It's Israel. You know? God remembers. All right, so what does he remember? Okay, so the, as the prophetic word from the Lord is now spoken... He begins by remembering, thirdly, the central problem that Israel is facing. So specific period, a deeply disappointed people. The prophetic word, God remembers, God remembers, even when his people forget, which we do, we're forgetful creatures. And now the central problem. What is it? Verse 2, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Israel's sin, you know. What do I mean by sin? Sin is the willful action of attempting, a lot of you have heard me talk this way, but the willful action of attempting to take God off his throne and put ourselves on the throne, put themselves on the throne. The belief that they could do a better, than God, better job than God has done at being God. The assuming to speak for God and now declare what is from God and what's not from God. The selfishness at the core of the human heart that wreaks all kinds of destruction and chaos. That has made God angry. He has wrath against sin. And, um, you know, we don't like to talk about it. I can understand. If we don't have an understanding of what the scriptures say about God's anger, if we don't have an understanding of how that fits from within the context of God's love, I can understand why that wouldn't be a fun thing to talk about. But listen, um, it's not because he's an unjust God. Far from it. It's absolutely rooted in his justice. It's absolutely rooted in his mercy and love, too, that God wouldn't tolerate a problem that destroys humanity and separates humanity from himself. He can't. He's perfect. He's just. We're not, right? So uh, God remembers and therefore reminds Israel not just the circumstances of exile, you know, he doesn't just remind them of their former circumstances. He reminds them of the reason 
that they were in exile to begin with. This phrase, your fathers, your fathers, right? Like, it's very intentional. It's used 22 times in the book of Jeremiah, and every time it's used, it's being used to talk about the sin that brought Israel into exile. This phrase, your fathers, is also used eight times in the book of Ezekiel, and every time it's used, it's referencing the same thing, the sin of Israel that led them into exile. In other words, Zechariah is reminding them that their rebellion against a good and loving king is what brought this about to begin with. The exile is an outworking of God's anger, and listen, Listen, God's anger being just and right, it needs, it needs to be dealt with, and we should want that. Like, it needs to be dealt with. Israel can't simply move on by ignoring God's anger or pretending that it never happened. Sin needs to be dealt with, and, and, and I think you agree with me. Imagine, because this is in large part the imagery that the Bible uses. Imagine a, a bride betraying a groom or a groom betraying a bride in the context of the marriage covenant. And committing adultery, going elsewhere openly, um, arrogantly. But wanting to simply be able to enter back into the marriage covenant without dealing with that betrayal. Simply wanting the other person just to go through life pretending as though it never happened. Never bring it up without ever addressing it despite it being a reality that they both knew. And we would all hear that circumstance and say, how could reconciliation be possible without dealing with the sin that separates them? This, is, this would be unjust. But the same is true here between the bride and the bridegroom. God's people who betrayed and, and attempted to overthrow God and God himself. Like it needs to be dealt with. So that's the central problem, Israel's sin and anger. So we need to ask, what's the prescription to that central problem? Repentance, verses three through six. This is what this is what Zechariah is about. It's about the prescription to, to the problem of sin. This prescription to the problem that landed them in exile. Repentance. Therefore, say to them, "Thus declares the Lord of hosts." And you, you see mercy here, right? Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And, and listen, Zechariah wants to be clear on who's speaking here and who is not. Right? Look, look at all the times he's. Declare, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts. I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts, three times. This isn't my opinion about the matter, he's saying. Right? This is the Lord who has authority over everything. The hosts of heaven, the hosts of earth. He's, he's the one with everything under his authority, and he's the one who's speaking here. What does he say? He says, do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. What did the, what did the prophets before Zechariah cry out? Thus says the Lord of hosts. Right, again, the former prophets told the people of Israel, it's not my opinion about the matter. God is speaking here, and what did they say? Return, same thing that God is telling them now. Return from your evil ways, from your evil deeds. But they did not hear. This is the problem. God spoke, they did not hear. They rejected it. They did not hear or pay attention to me. Declares who? Zechariah? No, it declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? The prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, this is the Lord speaking, which I commanded my servants and the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts proposed the purpose to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. Um, as it relates to how the Bible talks about repentance, like turning from our sin, turning towards God. In the scriptures, from the first words of the Bible to the last, right, uh, an entire survey, 
Whether we're looking at Old Testament prophecy here in Zechariah 1 or the teachings of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 7 and many other places, one, what we see to be clear is one cannot claim to be among the people of God. One cannot claim the name of Christ. One cannot claim the name of God while simultaneously living like the rest of the world as though there's no difference. And so the prescription to the central problem is repentance, a turning away from sin and a turning towards God, a dealing with our sin that brings about a life that honors him. But what this section doesn't indicate is that we can just live however we want as though God's grace is like sort of this inoculation against hell and judgment while letting us live in line with hell and judgment. And that's kind of what an inoculation is, right? Like I get the inoculation so I can go about my business and do what I was doing before, only not get sick. Right? That's not how God operates, right? It's not like this pardon of a sin that you just continue to get to do, you know, a lifestyle that you just continue to get to live. No, it, it brings about heart change. Return to me. Not in a perfect sense, not on this side of eternity, but it, we start to grow in his likeness. Return to me and I will return to you. You can't continue to walk away and call it good, the prophet is saying. There's a warning here. You have to hear God's word and pay attention to it rather than join in the contemporary mocking and rejecting of it. So, so what did the fathers do that brought about exile? They did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. They rejected his word. He spoke and they said, mm, I don't like that. Uh, you know, I don't want you to be my ruler. I'm, I'm going to rule myself because that's easier. It's more prosperous. More people accept me, right? This is hard. So there's a rejection of the word. And look, look at the response of God to, to that arrogance. Like, look at how the word of man and the word of God are contrasted in verses 5 and 6. And when I say to that arrogance, I don't mean of those people out there. I mean of us, humans, me, Jeremy Deck, right? The arrogance that we have of thinking that we can speak for God. Look at how this is contrasted. Your fathers, where are they? Like, they thought they could determine for themselves what was good and not good, wise and unwise, righteous and sinful, Without God? Like, where are they now? The prophet asks. Did they live forever? Like, who are they to do this? What kind of foolishness leads us to believe that we possess the wisdom of God and are therefore not in need of his word? And is it not the case that the very things they were being warned to repent of overtook them? But there's a deeper problem here. Because if we're being honest, this reality is also our reality. So I said, like, these circumstances, they mirror our, our own. These realities that we see here, they mirror our own. In other words, we don't simply share Israel's disappointment. We do in some respects. But we don't, it doesn't stop there. We don't simply share their need to hear from the Lord in the midst of those circumstances. We do, but it doesn't end there, right? We also share with them in the problem of sin. We share with them in the reality that we actually... You know, what, the, what does Israel see through this constant cycle of sin, even in the midst of God's mercies? They see that they can't actually save themselves. That's why God has to lead with mercy every time. If it was anything other than sheer grace, they're condemned. And so we, we share with that reality. We share with, with them in the reality that we can't turn to God apart from his work in us. Israel was given the law so that they could see that they could never on their own strength earn God's affections, that they could never possibly turn to him on their own stre strength, that it couldn't be something where it's like, 
okay, like, I turn to God first so that he can turn to me. If that were the case, uh, we'll never know God, right? So what do we do? Like I said, this is a deep problem. What do we do? Because if that's the case, have we been, have we been given a prescription that's truly impossible for sinful people? Turn to God so that he turns to us? How does that work if we can't turn to God? Like, that's, that's hard. It's difficult, and, and it's just maybe discouraging. I think this is why people stay away from the Old Testament, because they think that that's what it's saying. There's a sense of like, oh, well, the Old Testament just gives, just gives these impossible prescriptions, prescriptions that's truly impossible for people. So I, like, I don't really understand that, so I stay away from it. And yet, all of the scriptures do something much different. Listen, th- this is what leads us to the promise that makes the prescription possible. Zechariah, yes, he gives them this prescription. Yes, he wants them to know that on their own strength, they could never turn to God. If they don't know that by now, they will as, as time goes forward, right? Every time they have to turn to God in repentance, they start to see, I, I can't do this. So, so yes, Zechariah gives that, but he doesn't leave them here. Zechariah means God remembers, right? He hasn't forgotten his people. He hasn't forgotten his promises. We can still trust them. And so this book is actually going to be structured very interestingly. It's a series at the beginning of these visions that are all meant to remind Israel of God's promises to them, like promises that he's made in the past that actually extend into the future. And at the center, it's meant to point them to this coming future promise in which they can actually find the kind of transformation that brings about repentance and joy in life. They don't even realize it. But, but this future promise that's coming actually enables them to do exactly what they're called to do here in Zechariah. Toward the end of the book, you know, toward the end, we're gonna, and we're going to get to these sections right at Advent together, very fittingly, but there's a, a series of future promises about the birth of one who is to come, who will save mankind from their central problem, who will make the prescription possible. You know, while we did not trust God's decree, while we came out of exile disillusioned and disappointed and thinking, you know, like... God's not meeting my expectations. Why don't things look the way that I think they should look? Like, why isn't God on my agenda, right? Like, we come out disappointed, distrusting. He, this, this one who is to come, this one who came, he trusted it even when he was sweating blood in the garden and asking for the, the cup to be removed from him, willingly and lovingly, trusting and doing his Father's will all the way to a cross. While we were in deep need of God's word, he actually is God's word. And he came to us. We were in need of God's word and he came to us. While we were marred by the central problem of sin, he possessed no sin, living the life that we were meant to live perfectly before the Father. You know, a, a centerpiece of Zechariah, as we're going to see, is that in this context, these people were actually called to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed when Babylon came and, and sacked Jerusalem, we'll be talking more about this um, as we go, right? Um, they, they were called to a temple work, a work of rebuilding the temple. And it was a task in which the people were failing. And they were failing for a lot of the same reasons we talked about this morning. The, the disappointment, the disillusionment, the despondency, the lack of care. They were seeking, you know, luxury in paneled houses because they, they were just done trying to do what the Lord had called them to do. They weren't seeing him move in the way that that they thought he should be moving. They were failing at 
rebuilding the temple, but the promised one is the true temple. And when that temple is torn down in, in substitutionary death, he raises it up in three days. While we were unwilling and unable to deal with God's anger and wrath towards us, that's precisely why this promised one came, by taking the, that wrath upon himself instead of us, by dying in our place, by making it possible that we can know him. And while we were unable to turn to God unless he first turned to us, Jesus Christ became the very embodiment of God turning to us at the cross that we might by his spirit in revealing truth come to finally turn to him and worship him in joy and love. He's made a way that we can know God. He's made a way that we can have hope. He's made a way that we can turn from our former life and have new life. And that's exactly what Zechariah is about. Jesus is the centerpiece of Zechariah. It's all about him. This is why the book functions as good news for disappointed people. Jesus is the gospel. He is good news. That's the title of our series, Good News for Disappointed People. That's also the central theme of our message this morning. The scriptures hold out good news for disappointed people like us, that we might come to trust God and follow him. That we might see how, you know, we'll have much more to say about it, but, but how God's gospel in Jesus meets us in our disappointment and turns it into spiritual life and joy and faithfulness in the weeks and months ahead. For now, let's pray that he does that work here. So, Father, we pray that as we study this book, you would allow it to bear great fruit in our lives. Help us to trust you more. Help us to root all of life in your good news. For your glory in the city's good, in Jesus' name, amen.